America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know, one minute. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Dona Ulliker, and I'm actually in the United States right now, recording uh, from lovely and very, very warm Connecticut. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, still here in Brussels, Belgium. And today we are speaking with Jean-Francois Rattel. Jean-Francois, whom I will be calling Jeff for the balance of this podcast, is a professor at the University of Ottawa. He works on the microdynamics of violence, terrorism, and uh, Islamic radicalization in the North Caucasus and the Balkans. And the reason we brought uh, Jeff in to talk to us today is he collaborated with us at Crisis Group on a series of publications which are slowly beginning to appear on our webpage that look at Russian origin Muslims who have left Russia for other countries, for Ukraine, for Turkey, for the Schengen Zone. And... um, I wanted to bring Jeff in because he has this expertise uh, on these communities, on this population, to talk about the work that he and our crisis group team and other consultants such as um, Dr. Denis Sokolov did on this series. So first of all, welcome, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So migration, there's nothing new about migration, right? It's always been a fact of life uh, as long as human beings have existed and, uh, you know, promptly seem to have traveled first around Africa and then on to the rest of the world. The migrations that we're talking about here in this series of reports is of people from Russia, of um, Muslim ancestry who leave Russia. Do you think there are big differences between Muslims who leave Russia and Muslims who stay? There's difference, uh, and also there's similarities. Uh, Muslims, most likely this diaspora, this migration wave come from conflicts within Russia. So from the first and the second Chechen war, as well as the counterinsurgency in the North Caucasus. So both populations have lived through the traumas of war, but in the case of the people in migration, they also choose to turn toward whether Turkey, Ukraine, or Western Europe in order to find a place to raise their population, live better. But they went through challenging journey, all of them, whether it is through Europe, uh, going to Georgia or to Turkey. So I think this is where the major difference lays between the two uh, groups. What was the special challenges that they faced that made them so different? It was particularly difficult, let's say, the journey is to cross from the North Caucasus to Western Europe. They face a lot of challenging about dealing with smugglers, dealing with criminal network, challenges to be refused often at the borders or having to demonstrate that they have went through uh, what would fall into the refugee status. So about the war, about torture, about risk to their life, often it's bringing their family in difficult condition and also facing a regulation, for example, in Turkey and Georgia, where host countries are not always 
proactive at supporting or helping those communities. This is because they were Muslims? Well, first of all, because they are coming from a diaspora, from a conflict zone, diaspora that being securitized often by host government, whether it's in Turkey, in Georgia, or in Western Europe. There's a stigma or perception that those diasporas are linked to terrorist network. So they are starting with at least one or two strikes against them. They also left uh, Russia outside from the North Caucasus because of religious repression. Some of them adopt more rigorous understanding of Islam, and the Russian government have been cracking down on Salafis and his putare, and that makes them even more at risk because they are not only conflict-based diaspora, conflict-based migration, but they are people that encounter religious repression. So one of the things I found really striking in pulling this material together is these cycles of how host governments have related to these communities, right? So after the first Chechen war, actually most people migrated within Russia. They didn't leave Russia. During the second Chechen war, you started seeing these movements, particularly into the Schengen zone countries. And initially, at least, they were welcomed, right? The whole idea was that you're fighting against uh, oppression. You're trying to build uh, the dependent country. There was a lot of public sympathy in places like France and um, and also in places like in Turkey. And then more recently in both Turkey and in Schengen zone countries, people have been more nervous. Also Georgia, right? Same phenomenon that governments that were initially quite welcoming became nervous. And then in contrast, for instance, in Ukraine, we found that the war in Ukraine itself made them welcome people who they thought would be their allies against Russians. But then that shifted too. So is there a logic to the shift? Are host countries that initially welcome these populations and then become more nervous, are they right to be more nervous? You know, it's deep in how you look at it. We cannot deny that a very small number of individuals within the diaspora and that migration waves have joined terrorist network, whether in Syria or joined terrorist groups uh, within Western Europe or Turkey. At the same time, it is a very small fraction of diaspora that is over 100,000 people. So the short answer is there is a risk, but the risk has been overblown very often by government, including in Georgia, including in Germany, in Austria. So it's not limited to the former Soviet Union space. Uh, We've seen it in Turkey. There's a perception that this population or this diaspora is more at risk of radicalization. But when we compare and contrast with other population, let's say, of migrants in France and Germany, we see that the level of radicalization and uh, pathways to violent extremism is often lower within the Russian origin Muslims than it is with other groups. So to answer your question in a nutshell, probably no. It was not the right approach and it was uh, more stigmatization and secretization of a peaceful diaspora than the opposite. There was a, a lot of interest during the years of ISIS in Syria in the fact that there quite a few people were coming from Central Asia, which is obviously not Russia, but kind of linked to the post-Soviet sphere. Is there some kind of commonality between the Russian Muslim experience and the Central Asian Muslim experience, something like a sort of post-Soviet coming 
to into consciousness of Muslimhood or a new identity? We have seen uh, Central Asian using similar networks to access the battlefield in Syria and Iraq. So using existing network of the communities, uh, whether in Moscow and St. Petersburg, then traveling to Turkey and going to Syria and Iraq. So the network, the common lingua franco in a way was useful for Central Asian to have a better access to resources and logistic network, often built in Turkey for years of migration waves following the First and the Second Chechen War. At the same time, it would probably be problematic to compare or at least to claim that they are facing the same challenges. A lot of Central Asian have been facing challenges with regard to stigmatization with in Russia, as in the case of, because they are foreign workers, because they are Central Asians. In the case of the migrants we're looking in this report, they face uh, repression because of the North Caucasus and because of religious repression as a way to fight Salafism and other more extremist uh, approach to Islam within Russia. So there is comparative material. Uh, there's a lot of good studies done on this, but at the same time, it is more about the logistic and the pathways to travel than it is about the same root cause of migration in a way. The causes of migration are important and they're they're really quite disparate. And they also, they change over time, right? Where we have nationalists, we have religious Muslims, we have people who do in fact travel, they're trying to get to Syria, right? So they go to Turkey, on their way to Syria. We also have people who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans or otherwise queer who leave the North Caucasus, particularly Chechnya, because they feel that they're at risk from their own communities there. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of our findings? Because we did uh, we did spend some time talking to some of those folks as well and some of the people who work with them. And you have a kind of an interesting dichotomy there, right? Because on the one hand, you have these very tight-lit knit communities once people get to Western European countries. On the other hand, you have this subgroup of the population that feels at risk of actually from their community, whether that community is in Grozny or in Strasbourg. Yes, I think one of the big findings of the report and the discussion that we had is that by describing them only based on one generation, uh, one wave or different waves, we're missing the complexity and the nuanced patterns of the reason behind migration. Just like with the study of radicalization, uh, focusing on one root cause or one root factors, we're missing often the forest or the bigger picture. In that case, there was non-negligible amount of LGBTQ communities starting to migrate toward Western Europe and Eastern Europe also in a way, starting in 2017. Their journey was particularly difficult if you compare them with Russian origin ordinary Russian origin Muslims, uh, they could not rely as much on existing networks, on kinship networks, because they were hiding from Russian forces. They were hiding from their own ethnic groups. They were persecuted at multiple levels. And along the pathway, they were persecuted also by certain not host government, but the perception on the transit way that they, they should be stopped at the border, that they were not the same kind of migrants than uh, conflict-based migrants were also very difficult. So for them, they had to do it even uh, 
They needed more resources. They needed more collaboration from host government to be able to survive in transit and to survive when they reached the host countries. To survive in a way because they were hiding from, let's say, Chechens were hiding from Chechens. They were looking for new identities. They were looking for place uh, to seek refuge. They were looking for resources to build a new life, not because they are migrants, not because they're leaving Russia, but also because of uh, the sexual orientation or their past experience. So in that case, what we have found is that certain government in Western Europe were very proactive in helping those people in dealing with their asylum cases differently, not see them as simply migrants from war-torn countries, but migrants from facing repression at home for the sexual orientation and lacking resources to really build their cases often uh, within asylum uh, policies and with government. Though we also found, I think, and I found this really interesting, there's a gendered difference here that people who present as male have a different experience than those who presented as female. And we've also, you know, we came across some stories of young women who were forcibly returned to Russia by the diaspora communities, right? I think the gender dynamics is particularly interesting. And along the different period, we see that the gender roles have been changing also within the diaspora. But in that particular case, in the recent years, uh, younger migrants from the North Caucasus community as face a repression from their own community. Often what our interviewees talk about, the morality police within the Western Europe, where young Chechens, young male, would impose a religious code or religious behaviors on women in France and Germany and Austria, where they would go around and ensure that they would follow proper religious teachings or religious norms. This was from the community itself, but also from people from the Kedarov regime coming within Western Europe and the Schengen zone to enforce a level of fear on the diaspora. So overall, it's been extremely difficult, I think, in terms of gender perspective. Uh, women uh, within the diaspora have been facing even more challenges in terms of integration, often because of those elements, because of what they're facing, you know, as a challenge of migration, but also as a challenge of fulfilling norms expected by their own community. War and Peace a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And Hugh and I are talking to Jean-Francois Rattel about the Russian origin Muslim diaspora in Western Europe, Ukraine, Turkey, and uh, to a lesser extent, Georgia. So I want to kind of follow the gender story a little bit more because another thing that struck me is how differently social constructions of gender manifest in different diaspora communities in different countries and even within different countries and among different generations. As you were saying, Jeff, right, with young Chechens particularly, we don't see this that much with people from Central Russia or from other parts of the North Caucasus, but young Chechens who may have grown up in Western Europe deciding to enforce more religion on their compatriots, uh, deciding to enforce religious strictures as they see them on their compatriots. You also see, of course, young women 
of their own desire becoming more religious themselves, and some of the same patterns, interestingly, of fundamentalism and sometimes embrace violent uh, religious political views in Russia and in the diaspora communities. I mean, just all of these really interesting and very different dynamics. But where I was starting to go with the question was the differences between Turkey, Western Europe, Ukraine. Do you think people choose where to go in part because they are looking for a specific kind of community or do they go wherever they can go? I think sometimes, you know, migrants will go wherever they can. It doesn't mean they have the networks or the opportunity to go where they want. But at the same time, there was period in history where there was the perception that certain countries, host countries, were more welcoming. During the beginning of the Second Chechen War, the perception that Belgium and France were receiving migrants, Russian origin migrants, with open arms uh, was something that was discussed across the community, and a lot of people aimed for those countries. Later on, we've seen that within Western Europe, people have looked more to go toward Germany and even Austria. Austria was important before, but German-based countries become more important because there was a perception that they were providing more resources to migrants. So we see a shift in patterns within Western Europe. With regard to Turkey, Turkey was always perceived as a safe haven from the first Chechen war and the second Chechen war. So a lot of people made the transit to Turkey because there were existing communities, resources, and the host country was perceived as more welcoming. But with Turkey becoming the hub in a way or the transfer point of many foreign fighters going to Syria and Iraq, the crackdown in the communities made people more worried uh, to go to Turkey. It was more difficult. There was less resources and also uh, there was more scrutiny than people might have turned at that point more to go toward Ukraine. So to answer the question, I would say it is extremely contextual. Obviously, if an individual has an existing network somewhere, a family member, it might trigger the migration toward those places. But the most important factor, I would say, is really this historical contextual perspective and I would say the gossip within the community, the perception that what is uh, the best choice has always influenced uh, migrants. But as, if I can remind one last thing here, within Western Europe, the Dublin regulation make it more complicated for migrants to choose where they want, want to go within the Schengen space. The first country where the Russian origin uh, Muslim migrants come in is the country where they are registered. So because of the Dublin regulation, a lot of Russian origin Muslim has to rely on criminal network and smugglers to be able to reach a country of their choice, which makes, again, the journey more difficult, which makes the perception of illegality, criminality, often it's feeding up this stigma because people are underground, not because they want to be underground, but because the very regulation of the European Union make them having to cross illegally the EU border. I love the line in your report, which talked about a particular Polish-Belarusian railway line, which was kind of a, a railway to freedom for these people. But um, turning to what the European governments can do, I'm getting mixed messages. It sounds like your findings indicate that certainly from the oppression on the gender side, there would naturally be sympathy for these communities in Western Europe, which I guess is completely invisible right now. On the other hand, you have 
the very prominent cases of uh, Russian origin Muslims being involved in these dreadful acts like the, the murder of Samuel Patti, the teacher in France, and uh, the bombing of the nightclub in Istanbul, which were clearly linked to the Russian origin Muslims. So what are your findings can change the way the, this community is treated, which make, by the sound of it, it sounds that they're being hit from both sides. Well, I think we made a series of recommendations. Uh, I can talk at least two of them for the moment, and then we can uh, go in more details. I think one important thing is be able to inform and provide migrants a better understanding of their rights and resources within the European Union. You know, at the border, understanding what is considered an asylum case, how do you build it, what is the Dublin regulation, offering them better understanding of what resources are available in every host countries to make them feel more welcome and help integration. Uh, with regard to when you're talking about a terrorist network, I, I think one of the recommendations that we're making is that the securitization pattern of those communities have been making the problem worse in many cases where people feel threatened, people feel that they can be deported because there's a perceived idea that they are linked to extremism network. One thing that we want to underline is in comparison to other communities, the North Caucasus communities and the Russian origin Muslim migrants are not overrepresented in terrorist network. You have cases of certain attacks that you can look at. You talk about Samuel Patsy, you talk about the Istanbul nightclub, but they are rare. And at the same time, what we're suggesting is that government should be aware of to better understand those networks, better understand those communities in order to be able to deal with cases of extradition also. Because we have seen in the recent year more Russian origin Muslim being extradite to Russia, even if there's a risk of torture, a risk of them to disappear within the prison system. And one recommendation we're making is that the courts, the judicial system, and the migration policies in Europe should be taking into account the risk involved in dealing with red notice, the Interpol red notice, and the collaboration with foreign countries with regard to deportation and extradition of member of this community. So Jeff, what do you think are the questions that still remain to be answered that research like ours and follow-on research like yours can answer? Because I think, you know, one of the contributions we make with this series is that we can help post-country governments understand this community. We give them some of the tools and some of the information about the diversity, about the different issues that face these communities. But what didn't we get around to or what didn't we have the resources or the tools to do that you think needs to still be done? The gender dynamics, the discussion about the LGBTQ community in Europe is our topics that remain to be a more deep dive analysis. We obtain a series of interviews, but we also face challenges where people were not willing to talk that much about those topics. We understood that they are topics that need Needs to be better understood. We need to be able to provide specific resources to women, to LGBTQ community members. And I would say that we hope to be able in the next round of interviews to go further in that topic. 
Second thing I can mention, we've been always discussing about being able to compare and contrast the diaspora, the Russian origin Muslim, with other diasporas in countries. Let's say the Kurdish diaspora in Germany, the Balkan diaspora in Austria, the North African diaspora in France, and understanding whether there is difference in integration, difference in resources, difference in patterns of radicalization. Because we make statements, we discuss that uh, we should de emphasize the aspect of secretization, but it's also by better understanding what is specific to the different diaspora. I think uh, seeing a broader perspective of the Muslim community in Europe and where Russian origin Muslims fit into that cartography or this broad community would also offer perspective of research. And I would finalize on one more aspect. We want to discuss more and understand better how uh, Russian origin Muslims circulate and move across spaces uh, between Ukraine, between Turkey, between Georgia and Western Europe. One thing we have noticed, and there's a back and forth of migration and movement for work, uh, for family-related reason and multiple reasons. So having a better understanding of the post-migration migration Migration, in a way, would be something that would be extremely helpful for the scholarship and also to offer resources to for those communities. Jeff, thank you so, so much. I know we're out of time, but this has been a really rich conversation, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. And I hope that you, our listeners, have also enjoyed this and can check out our work on this topic as it uh, pops up uh, on our website in the weeks to come. Uh, some of the material is already there. It's uh, under the special coverage topic on our website www.crisisgroup.org and the kind of the cover topic is the Russian origin Muslim diaspora the ripple effects of conflict you also may want to check out uh, Jeff's uh, own work he is most recently the co-editor with Lawrence Burrs of a book titled Networked Insurgencies and Foreign Fighters in Eurasia available at fine online bookstores everywhere you should also follow our other work on Russia and uh, peripheral countries that we've been talking about on our website crisisgroup.org and uh, you can follow us on Twitter personally I'm at uh, at Hugh underscore Pope and Olia is at at Olia Olika. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, which is also at Crisis Group. And don't forget to tweet at us about what you like and don't like in the podcast. We pay attention, we listen, sometimes we bring in guests to respond to your questions. If you're listening through Spotify and Apple Podcasts, uh, we'd love it if you left us ratings and reviews. War and Peace Podcast is a partner on a network of podcasts about Europe known as Europod. Do check them out. There's lots of things to listen to there. Huge thanks to producers Bill Media and to our own podcast coordinators, Rebecca Zerhunasefa and Patricia Alonzo. They make sure that Hugh and I know what we're doing every time we hit the record button. And the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners, and we're looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks' time. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. <laughs>